Hail and well met, everyone. Welcome to Geek Thyself, a podcast by a nerd for other nerds that love geeking out over random facts and esoteric trivia. My name is Heather, and I'll be your host as we journey into the wondrous land of information. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Geek Thyself. This week, I'm going to be talking about animals. As you know if you've been listening to my podcast at all, I do really love animals. Cats in particular, but animals in general. And so today, instead of just focusing on cats, I'm going to go over some different animal facts. Things that I think are interesting, things that I don't think most people necessarily know, and also go over a few misconceptions that some people have about different animal facts. True to form, though, I am going to start with cats. No big surprise to anybody. So let's get right into it. So the first animal fact about cats that I think is interesting that not a lot of people know is that a single litter of kittens can have multiple fathers. Cats are what's referred to as an induced ovulator. And what that means is that the female cat, when she's in heat, doesn't actually ovulate and drop eggs to be fertilized until she's mated with a male. She could drop eggs during her heat the first time she mates with a male cat, and then she could go mate with a completely different male cat and drop more eggs. This means that her litter of kittens could have two or three different fathers, depending on how closely together she mated with different males. It's one of the reasons why you can see such variability in the same litter of kittens, because those kittens could literally have three or four different fathers, and unless you happened to see the mother cat mate with all of them, you'd never know. There are other animals that are induced ovulators. Uh, ferrets, for example, are also induced ovulators as are rabbits, so it's the same thing there. In theory, they can have multiple fathers to the same litter. Another cat fact uh, cheetahs, this is a big cat fact, cheetahs don't retract their claws. It's one of the reasons why they're able to get such good traction and run so quickly, but most cats, including most big cats, do retract their claws. So if you've ever held your cat's foot and, you know, pushed on the pads a little bit, you can see the nail pop out. It's been retracted and then you push it out. Well, dogs don't do that, and cheetah nails are more like dog nails. It does improve their traction. Um, it's one of the reasons why they're able to get started running so quickly. They can actually go from 0 to 47 miles an hour in just two seconds. Now, obviously, they don't hit it every single time, I'm sure, but they physically can. And they can hit 65 miles an hour when they top out, which is a lot. A lot of people realize cheetahs are the fastest or at least one of the fastest land animals, but they don't necessarily know that it hits 65 miles an hour. So if you were going the legal speed limit down the freeway, a cheetah could theoretically keep up with you for at least a few seconds, which is pretty impressive. Uh, Another uh, large cat fact is that jaguars have jaws that are so strong that they can actually crack turtle and tortoise shells. They do this, obviously, to get at the meat that's inside to eat it, but uh, they have draws that are strong enough that they can do that, which is really impressive. Uh, Similar fact, not cat-related, crocodiles and alligators have very strong jaws and can bite down very hard, which is something a lot of people realize. Not everyone realizes, though, that they don't have nearly as much jaw strength to open their mouths. That's why for any of us that grew up watching The Crocodile Hunter or El 
you know, any of those type of shows on Animal Planet, the reason they put rubber bands around the jaws of the alligators and the crocodiles is because those rubber bands are strong enough to keep the alligator and crocodiles from opening their mouths because their jaws are designed to put pressure when they close, but not when they open. So even though they could crush bones when they snap their jaws shut, they can't then force their mouth open if someone's holding it shut, which is interesting. Another thing about cats in general, not just small or big cats, is how flexible their spines are. Most people are aware of the old saying, cats always land on their feet. And to a certain extent, this is true. In reality, the reason that cats are able to do this is because of how flexible their spines are. They have more vertebra than you and I do. And their spines are very, very mobile, very flexible, as I'm sure anyone who owns a cat has noticed. So what happens is because of how flexible their spines are, when they start to fall, if they're not right way up, they can actually flip themselves midair. And that's how they land on their feet. It's not something that you and I could necessarily do. I mean, maybe, you know, stunt people with tons of years of training and the right distances could do it. But they're able to do it easily. And it, they are also able to absorb their landing well because they've got such strong muscles and their joints are so flexible that it almost acts like a shock absorber or like the shocks of your car. It just cushions it so that they don't hurt themselves the way you or I would. It's also one of the reasons why uh, you hear stories about cats surviving falls from like three-story buildings or ten-story buildings or whatever, you know, anything like that. They get injured, don't get me wrong, they get injured, but they survive. And the reason is because they are able to flip themselves over so that they don't land head first or back first. And they're also able to cushion their landing a little bit with those strong muscles and joints. So that's a cool thing. So moving on from cats, I'm going to give you some bird facts. The first bird fact that I found that I think is interesting is there is a type of vulture called the... I'm going to horribly mispronounce this because it's a French word, so please bear with me. La Mergiere vulture? Not sure I got that right. But the La Mergiere vulture actually can eat bone. It will take bones and drop them, and then when they crack open on the rocks, it'll eat the marrow out of the inside as well as some of the smaller pieces of bone. And the stomach acids it has are so strong, those acids will then dissolve the bone fragments as well, and it'll digest it and use it for nutrients. This particular type of vulture is also sometimes called the bearded vulture, which in hindsight I probably should have just called them bearded vultures and saved myself the trouble of pronouncing a French name, but too late. They're considered an old world vulture since they're found primarily over in Europe and Africa and parts of Asia. They also have almost a 70 to 90% diet made up of bone. So they do eat animals, but the majority of their food comes from bone because their stomach acids are intense and they can digest them just fine. They're also very large birds with up to an almost 10 foot wingspan. And they're a lot prettier than the vultures I grew up with here in California, to be honest. They actually have some nice white feathers on their face and prettier patterns. The vultures I grew up with primarily were turkey vultures, which are not quite as attractive. 
Another bird fact I found that I thought was really interesting is that ravens are classified as songbirds, and they're actually the biggest songbirds. They get up to be about 25 inches or 63 centimeters. And as you can hear in the background, even my cat Mowgli thinks that's amazing. An interesting fact I discovered also is that a group of ravens can be called either an unkindness or a conspiracy. Apparently Mowgli is unhappy that I stopped talking about cats and started talking about birds. Okay, so going into the last few minutes before the break, I'm going to talk about just some random animals. So there's no grouping on this like the first couple. It's just random facts that I found or some of them are actually things I already knew but that I think are interesting. The first one is that skunks can actually have their scent glands removed and that's why some people can keep them as pets. I don't believe it's legal here in California. I didn't actually look that up but it'd be interesting to find out. But I do know, well, at least I was told a story, that there used to be a surgeon at UC Davis, which is a big veterinary teaching hospital here in California in the Sacramento area, used to really like doing that particular surgery. He really liked the surgery where he went in and removed the anal glands from a skunk, or excuse me, the scent glands from a skunk. But one time when he was doing the surgery, Something went wrong, even though he had done it a hundred times before, and he accidentally broke open the scent gland, which then flooded the hospital with the smell of a skunk for a long time. It took them a really long time to get rid of the smell, and so now UC Davis does not do that surgery anymore. Now, this is an anecdote. It was told to me secondhand by people I know who've gone to the UC Davis Veterinary Medical School. So I don't know if it's one of their like urban legends or if it actually happened, but if it did happen, I have to admit, I think it's kind of funny. Unpleasant. I would not have wanted to be there when it happened, but kind of funny. Another random fact is uh, actually something that some people also get confused sometimes is that camel humps don't carry water. I think most people know that by now, but what they do carry that has a similar effect for the camel is both of those humps are actually storage areas for fat. Normally for people and other animals, so like you and me, cats, dogs, the fatty tissue layer is sort of spread out across the whole body and then one of the things it does is actually helps keep heat in. For camels who live primarily in the desert, that's obviously not something they need. So what their bodies have developed to do is instead of having the fat spread across the body, it's stored inside the humps. In particular, the Bactrian camel, which is the one that has the two humps. Each of those humps contains a fat storage and it doesn't really have a fatty tissue layer around the rest of its body. What it can do though is it can break down the fat that is stored inside of those humps and it can use them to provide it with water and energy. So in a way there's water stored there but it's not true water. It's not like they're carrying around a sack of water inside their humps. My next random fact has to do with the origin of the term chewing the cud. Most people, or at least I think some, have probably heard the phrase chewing the cud. And basically it means to keep going over a topic over and over again and talking about the same things over and over again. Well, the reason it is called chewing the cud is because ruminants, which are things like cows and sheep, 
what they'll do in order to get the full nutrients out of the food they eat, which is hard for them to access normally, is they actually regurgitate some of the food and they chew it further once it's already been partly digested. This lets them break down the food even more, which makes it easier for their stomachs to then absorb the nutrients and get what they need and digest everything. Another thing about ruminants, um, and cows in particular, is I've heard some people say, oh, don't cows have four stomachs? So this is sort of a yes and no fact. Ruminants, like cows, do have four chambers to their stomach. However, they technically only have one large stomach. So it's not four individual ones that the food goes through. It's just one big one, but there's four chambers to it that do different things. The rumen and the reticulum, which are where the first two sections are primarily focused on fermenting the food. Cows and other ruminants are called foregut fermenters because that's the first part of their stomach, their foregut, and they ferment the food there. And by fermenting it, it helps break down the food more, which they then regurgitate and chew. They chew their cud, and then they swallow it again and continue processing it through the omasum and abomasum. The abomasum is sort of their true stomach, and the omasum is one of the other areas where they're breaking down the food more. There are also animals called hindgut fermenters, such as horses and rabbits. Both of those are hindgut fermenters. And what they do is that their gut ferments the food also, but it does it at the end of the the gut instead of the front. So it's a hindgut fermenter instead of a foregut fermenter. Hindgut fermenters also do something called caprophagizing, which is a little gross for us. Um, Caprophagizing is when they eat their own stool to reprocess it. Now, I do want to be clear, they eat very specific stools. They will, at certain times of the day or certain parts of their digestive cycle, they will have bowel movements that are very specifically a type of stool that they then eat and reprocess. I know in rabbits, this sometimes gets referred to as night stools, and they tend to be softer and not shaped the same. The reason they do this is because that they then can get more nutrients out of that particular uh, stool that they're eating. Because with plant matter, the cellulose is very hard to break down, and it makes it hard for them to get the full nutrients they need out of it. But their bodies are designed not to eat meat. They're designed to eat that plant matter. And so in order to make sure they get as much as they need out of it, they have evolved to do this special type of fermenting with their gut. Either the foregut fermenting or the hindgut fermenting. Another random animal fact that I think is interesting and that I learned actually my freshman year of college in one of my animal science classes is that chinchillas can spray their urine up to three feet. They tend to do it either as a defense mechanism when they feel cornered because they're trying to make themselves less attractive to their predator or they'll do it when they're upset and feeling territorial with another chinchilla, things like that sometimes. So um, that's why I know if you look online, you can find a lot of articles about, you know, my chinchilla is spraying, what do I do, why is it doing it, that kind of thing. But that urine, not only will they just spray on something closer to them, but they can shoot it up to three feet, which is a lot. I would definitely not want to be standing near a chinchilla cage when it decided to spray. 
Okay, so my last fact before the break is about uh, special types of fish that live in the Arctic. There are some animals, in, in particular certain types of fish that live in the really cold waters of the Arctic Oceans, who have a sort of chemical antifreeze in their blood. It's actually called an antifreeze glycoprotein, and these special proteins are what make it so that they can swim in the water when it's so cold and not have their blood start to form ice crystals like yours or mine would. So the reason that they can swim around and survive in such cold water without turning into fish sickles is because of these particular glycoproteins that you and I don't have. However, scientists have been studying them and trying to learn more about them, trying to see if there's ways we can use them, you know, maybe for a more natural version of antifreeze as opposed to what we currently are using in our cars, things like that. So with that interesting fact, we'll go to our break and then I will be back to tell you some more cool animal facts. Okay, so our subscription drive just ended. As I'm recording this, we've we've just wrapped up the subscription drive, which ended on April 30th. Thank you again so much for everyone who has supported us, either by listening to us or by subscribing or by retweeting or reviewing, anything like that. We appreciate all of it. Speaking of, please don't forget to review Geek Thyself on iTunes. It really is your reviews and ratings that help my show and other shows on the network get noticed. It's how people see them, and it's it's a really beneficial thing for us. So even if you can't afford to donate anything, even just rating us or putting a quick review up saying how much you enjoy the show is always greatly appreciated, and we really, really want to thank you all for all of your support. And speaking of support, I want to recommend one of the other shows here on Nerdsmith. If you like actual play podcasts, but dragons and fantasy magic and things like that are not quite your style, then I highly recommend that you check out Chaotic Goodness. It's a really interesting actual play podcast. They play in the Uncharted Worlds game setting. So they're in space on a ship called the Irritated Badger, and all sorts of hilarity and craziness ensues, as does with most actual play podcasts. It's a lot of fun. I'm always interested to see what's going to happen the following week, because you never quite know what the crew members of the Irritated Badger are going to pull out of their hats. And this week, if you check out the WAND radio episode, you'll even find out that, you know, a couple of the Irritated Badger members may have made an unexpected trip to the High Academy for the Celestial and the Occult. So don't forget to check that out at nerdsmith.org or wherever you download your podcasts. And with that, let's get back to this week's topic. So now that we're back from the break, I want to talk about whales, dolphins, and porpoises. First fact I'm going to start off with that I think is a common misconception, I might have even said it myself before without realizing, is that dolphins are not porpoises, but they are also not whales. They are all part of the same family grouping called cetaceans, but they're not actually all exactly the same. So one example of this is that porpoises actually have more spade-shaped teeth, whereas dolphins have cone-shaped teeth. So dolphin teeth are more sharp and pointy. Also, dolphins actually have multiple varieties. The ones we see most commonly in TV, like flipper, 
and I think at a lot of parks that have dolphins tend to be the bottlenose dolphins but there are tons of other types of dolphins including some that even live in rivers like the boto or amazon river dolphin which is a it's a freshwater dolphin it doesn't even go to the ocean there's actually over 35 kinds of different dolphins most of them range from between 7 and 10 feet although the bottlenose is actually 14 feet long so they're they can get pretty big another cool fact about whales is that there's some evidence to suggest that they might actually be able to sense the magnetic force of the earth and that's partly how they get themselves around and how they can tell which paths to take from one spot to another is because they can sense the magnetism of the earth now the magnetic force of the earth is not real real strong you and i for instance cannot sense it at all but like I said, there's evidence that they can and that they use this to their advantage. So they may actually have six senses instead of just five. Another fact that I think a lot of people don't know or are slightly confused by is that most whales cannot hold their breath for hours and hours and hours. Whales, dolphins, and porpoises can all hold their breath a lot longer than you and I can. And in fact, some of them can hold their breath for almost up to an hour or so. But they all breathe air just like you and me, and that's why they have to come to the surface. The blowholes that we see in videos and things where they're blowing all of the water out of the hole at the back of their neck head area is actually them exhaling as they come to the surface. And the combination of mucus from their respiratory system as well as the moisture in the air above them causes all of those water droplets that go flying everywhere. Because they actually can't hold their breaths for that long, most whales will feed near the surface within about 164 feet or so of the surface of the water. One exception is the sperm whale, which will swim down more than 10,000 feet to get down into the deep ocean where it hunts for its giant squid food. However, the majority of the whales that are swimming near the surface are going to either be chasing after pods of fish and things like that and actually eating the fish, or they'll be what's referred to as a baleen whale, which actually sort of filters through the water and will swim through and specifically target groups of krill, which are these little tiny shrimp and things like that. It'll swim through there and actually filter those krill out as it's taking large mouthfuls of water with using its baleen which is sort of a lot of little almost plastic-like protrusions in its mouth they aren't made of plastic obviously but the the texture and the um consistency of them almost can be sort of referred to like that but what they do is they basically a bunch of them get together and form this large filter that they then use to separate out the water from the krill that they want to eat and this apparatus that they use is called a baleen b-a-l-e-e-n okay moving on i'm going to talk about some cool facts about snakes the first one is that garter snakes as well as some other types of snakes will hibernate in large groups so you can actually find videos of this online as well, but there are some areas where during the winter when they're hibernating because it's so cold, what they'll actually do is there will be literally thousands of snakes, and sometimes they're not all the same kind, but there will be thousands of snakes all hibernating together in the same caves, the same rock crevices, things like that. 
So then spring comes and things start to thaw and thousands of snakes crawl out from these little holes and crevices where they've hibernated over the winter. And it's incredible how many of them will do this. Um, garter snakes are one example. There are other types that will do it as well, but that's just the one I'm familiar with. But it's a really cool thing to look up too. If you look at the videos online, you can find them on YouTube. And it's, personally, I think it's a really cool thing that they'll do that because they're generally not social animals. They don't tend to spend a lot of time with each other other than mating and, you know, just living in the same vicinity. So the fact that every once in a while they'll get together and actually all congregate in one spot is kind of interesting. Another interesting thing is that egg-eating snakes, and there's a few different varieties of snakes that will eat eggs, but the ones that do actually have uh, special bony protrusions in their throats that they can use to crunch down onto the eggshell as they're eating it. So what happens is they swallow the egg, the bones in their throat crunch down and crack the egg open, and then they swallow all of the insides of the egg, but they regurgitate up the eggshell. So that's how they're able to do it. They can get the what they need out of the egg without having to actually have a whole egg pass through their systems the, all the way through. They'll just regurgitate up the shell and then they're done with it and don't have to worry about it. The other interesting snake fact I found, which is something that I wasn't aware of already, is that there are certain types of snakes, including one that gets referred to as the flower pot snake. It also gets referred to as the Brahmini blind snake, and that's Brahmini, B-R-A-H-M-I-N-Y. So Brahmini blind snake. But what it can do, and what there are a few other animals around the world that can do, is something called parthenogenesis. Parthenogenesis is a way for them to reproduce without having to mate. So it's generally the females that are doing this, although in some species, I believe both can do it. Although I don't know that that's always animals. I think sometimes it might be more uh, plant and based than animal based. But what they can do is essentially reproduce without having to have the other half. So they're making clones of themselves, essentially, and for the parthenogenesis in this particular snake the flower pot snake the females can reproduce doing this and what happens is the babies are all female because she has no y chromosome to give them so they're all female and for the most part they are clones of the mother depending on exactly which type of egg is produced uh, this gets into more genetics and like reproduction complicated stuff that i didn't plan to cover in this episode so i'm not going to go into it but there are different ways that the eggs can split, different ways that the eggs can become whole in order to be born as a fully functional snake through this parthenogenesis method. And depending on which route they go, the eggs will either be perfect copies of their mother, so they'll be clones of her, or they will be half clones because half their DNA will be just like hers and half of it will be slightly different. That's a very complicated process that I'm not going to get into with three minutes left on my podcast, but it is a, a thing. You can look it up and find more information online. Parthenogenesis is spelled P-A-R-T-H-E-N-O-G-E-N-E-S-I-S. -E -E and if people think that's an interesting thing, I might cover it in a future episode, but I wasn't planning for it today, so I don't have enough information to do that. And for my very last animal fact of 
this episode, I'm going to talk about DNA. So the parthenogenesis stuff kind of ties into it. But specifically, I want to talk about how much of our DNA, yours and mine, is actually similar to other animals. So I'm primarily focused on the big apes, the great apes, because those are the ones that we're the most closely related to. However, they have done studies and they've looked at our genome and everything, and they've actually determined that in most cases, it's around 99.9% of our DNA is the same as another person's. Now, this doesn't mean that a random person next to you on the subway is so closely related to you that there would be, you know, birth defects or something from having children with them. It's not that kind of closeness in the DNA. What it means, though, is that our overall DNA structure, our alleles, you know, we all have the same number of chromosomes. We all have the same chromosomes. The specific genes that are on those chromosomes and the specific alleles of those genes that we carry, which is something that I covered a little bit in back in my genetics episode, that information, those differences between me and, say, my husband or one of my best friends is only 0.1%. The rest of our DNA is essentially the same. The basic DNA that makes us human is the 99.9%, and then the 0.1% is what means I have brown hair and brown eyes and am short. I'm only 5'1", versus my husband who has brown hair and is six feet tall. Big difference. You know, that 0.1% of our DNA is what makes those changes between me and another person. And then for the great apes, the percentage of DNA that's different is also relatively low. For example, the ones that are most closely related to us are bonobos and chimpanzees. They both have 98.8% of their DNA in common with us. And then gorillas have 98.4% in common with us. Orangutans, which are the next closest, are 96.9% in common with us. So all of the great apes have less than 4% of their DNA different from you and me. They are our closest animal relatives. And what this means is that at some point in our evolution, we as humans split off from the other great apes. We still technically, because of how closely we are related to them, could be considered great apes, but we're on a slightly different branch of the family tree, and only 1.2% of our DNA separates you and me from the chimpanzees, which I think is a really interesting animal fact that I don't think a lot of people know, but I think it's really fascinating that our scientists have been able to figure this out and figure out how similar we actually are to other animals on the planet to everything on the planet that's living actually because all living things are made up of dna bananas have a dna apples have a dna chickens cats dogs we all have a dna that makes us what we are and so for example um, we have 90 percent of our dna in common with mice that's one of the reasons that they like to use mice for the laboratory testing is because if they're looking at medications and things that could affect humans, their DNA is 90% the same as ours and they breed quickly and they can make a lot of babies and they can be controlled very easily from one generation to another. So it gives them a way to have a large pool for testing. 
So the next time you go to the zoo and see the gorillas or the chimpanzees, you'll know that you actually have the majority of your DNA in common with them, which makes them even more fascinating, I think. Well, I hope you enjoyed learning about all of these different animal facts. They were a little scattered in a couple places, but I thought they were all interesting, and so hopefully you did as well. If you have a topic you'd like me to cover, or if you want to know more about one of the animal facts that I mentioned, then feel free to tweet me with a topic suggestion or with a question at amethyst underscore magic, and that's magic with a CK on Twitter. Or you can find me on the Nerdsmith Discord server, which you can find a link to on our homepage up in the upper right-hand corner. We've got all our social media links, and one of them is for Discord, and I'm on there quite a bit, so you can also find me there. Please remember to check out the other wonderful podcasts and productions here at nerdsmith.org. I'll be back next week with a new and interesting topic, and until then... Don't forget to geek thyself. trouble cause it follows where she goes together we're a double dose of sweetness ass and pluck we're the sisters charm and trouble and we're here to sing and wait wait trouble we can't say that why not roll me over in the clover roll me over lay me down and do it again do it again charm and trouble on nerdsmith.org or wherever you download your podcasts because nobody likes a late wench or an early lad hello fans of critical role do you mean to make your music more melodious? Do you seek to sing like Scanlan Shortholt? We'll look no further than Crosswords, a new video series from the creator of the Critical Role Hamilton mashup album. And also this song. Crosswords with Will Crosswit. Advice and analysis for the musician at the gaming table. Available on nerdsmith.org or wherever you watch your YouTube videos. YouTube, right? Probably YouTube.